I think a lot of times people ask like, what's next in this conversation? And I don't think anybody knew 2020 is gonna hand us so many curveballs. So I don't have a magic wand or ball. I can't forecast the future. But I, I do think when you think about diversity and inclusion going into 2021 and you know, for leaders listening to this and wanting to be involved and not be left out and not be surprised again, you know, these things, these world events, these things are gonna happen again. Um, I would really, really think long and hard about how I want to show up next year. You know, how do I want to be, as I would call an ally, you can call yourself whatever, you know, form of uh, ally or brand you want to call yourself. But how do I want to be inclusive? How do I want to be seen? How do I make other people feel when they're around me? Because we remember that. It's it's a lasting, lasting feeling. Uh, And this inclusion factor, seeing people for who they are, and really hearing them and not having all the answers and learning and being open to curiosity is it really helps you just be a better human. So I would just say, you know, as you think about 2021, whatever your organization looks like, whatever your network looks like, think about where you can lead from where you're at. Uh, we all have influence regardless of you know, title, position, wealth. What can you do um, to be inclusive? Because I think I think the world, we all want it to be a better place and it's we're a ways away from that. But it does start with our own, not to be hokey, but it starts with your own behaviors and your own sphere of influence. So I'd, I'd encourage leaders to kind of set some intention for, for uh, 2021. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast brought to you by Cartavera, a leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business and grow your life. Today is episode 78. Our special guest is Julie Kratz, and the title is Lead Like an Ally, What It Takes to Be an Intentionally Inclusive Leader. Julie is a highly acclaimed TEDx speaker. She's a certified unconscious bias trainer. We're going to talk about unconscious bias today. And she works with leaders and organizations to help them be more intentional in creating and nurturing diverse and inclusive workplaces starting with their own lives. She's the author of several books, including Lead Like an Ally, A Journey Through Corporate America with Strategies to Facilitate Inclusion. This seems to be, and I would say is, the topic of great relevance this year, 2020, and as we move into 2021. Difference, inclusion. We're going to talk today about allyship and something called your ally radar. We're going to talk about Julie's ideas on specific ways and strategies to be more diverse and inclusive in your workplace, starting with how inclusive you are in your own life. We're going to talk about different ways to navigate the privilege conversation. We're going to talk about the pros and cons of diversity targets. We're going to talk about something interesting called affinity bias, which is our desire, a natural desire to be around people like us, and how this can be an unconscious bias that gets in the way of having diverse and inclusive lives and workplaces. Bottom line is, Julie's going to talk about the fact that each one of us has the opportunity to make a difference every day in the world around us when it comes to diversity, inclusion, and just how people feel being around us. Get ready for a perhaps challenging but necessary conversation in our world of difference today. Podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. 
We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. Craig and I are excited to be here today. Another special guest, and I, I'm not sure if I even remember how Julie and I connected. I think we just, I think I just reached out to her on LinkedIn. She seemed like she was doing interesting work. <laughs> and what I love about that is when you reach out to people, you never know what's going to happen. We had a Zoom conversation. As soon as I finished that call, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we got to get Julie <laughs> onto the podcast. And here she is today coming to us from uh, Indiana, right in the heart of America. Where the where you know the United States and the middle states are completely uh, woke when it comes to diversity and inclusion. So mm -hmm. I'm sure she's going to talk about how amazing things are happening in her part of the world. Uh, Julie, I love some of her her book titles. I mean, she's an author, she's a coach, speaker, trainer. Her most recent book, I believe this is most recent, is Pivot Point: How to Build a Winning Career Game Plan for Mid-Career Women. Uh, another mm -hmm. book called One, How Male Allies Support Women for Gender Equality. I'm mm. excited to learn a lot more about that. Yeah. And the other book is called Lead Like an Ally. <laughs> so yes, we're going to be talking about diversity and inclusion and all the different things that means that we don't know what it means. Uh, you know, we're in the middle of it. The, the world we have, we are in the middle of this topic, and it is such an important topic. And I'm excited to have you here with us today, Julie. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So, Julie, give us a little bit of your story that brings us here today. Yeah, well, like you said, I'm a, a speaker, a trainer, and an author. I spend a lot of time uh, with corporate America leaders that, despite their best efforts, they're just not where they want to be with something <laughs> like diversity and inclusion. And like you said, I'm in the Midwest, the heart of it all. We are, uh, unfortunately, a bit behind in this conversation. Uh, but that to say... Uh, there's no one that has this whole thing figured out. I don't think there was anybody this summer that wasn't caught off guard with how to respond to the Black Lives Matter movement and certainly uh, the pandemic and how polarizing it's been for those most marginalized. Uh, no one knows quite what to say or do. Um, my, my clients really struggle with, we want to promote diverse talent, but where are they, right? We're trying to recruit diverse talent, but somehow um, we're not getting the applications that we're looking mm -hmm. for. When we look around our meetings and our virtual meetings nowadays, you know, everyone kind of looks the same, behaves the same. You know, we're not getting the best ideas because we have a lot of sameness going on. Uh, and we want to look like the customers and communities we do business with, but we don't. We don't. We're not aligned, especially as you go up uh, more in an organization. So those are the fun challenges I get to help uh, leaders wrestling with in corporate America and spend a lot of time talking about allyship as a tool, having the toolkit to know how to engage in this candid conversation, uh, a candid conversation I, I'm sure we'll have today. <laughs> so we're right. going to talk about all those things. I mean, some for some people listening, these words are new to them. Ally, allyship. One thing I want to touch on you just mentioned is like how, vis how visible it is or isn't. And I don't know if it's true all the time for me, but I find it, I tend to see it everywhere now. Like I. I remember about earlier this year, it was one of my last speaking engagements. It was a construction conference and they were talking about, it was a panel. It was the future of leadership in construction. 
And I look up at the panel and I'm thinking, you got six men and you, you chose to have a woman be the moderator, but not on the panel. Now they did have a person, one of the men was of color and I'm thinking, am I the only one noticing this? Well, apparently I wasn't because it was some of the conversation in the hall. And I'm thinking, did no one see that coming? Mm-hmm. I mean, I get that construction is still a heavily male industry, but you not only did you not have any women on the panel, but you had the woman be the moderator, mm-hmm. which to me is even worse. You'd be better off having just seven dudes up there. Right. Don't, so, either, you don't right. even try it. <laughs> so talk about this idea of just being able to see it because you can't change something that you don't see. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I call it like the the ally radar. And when I say ally, it's it's really being there for somebody that's different than you, you know, much like yourself with with women or people of color, those that have different identities than our own. Uh, but what you're referring to, that construction situation, this is all too common in corporate America and conferences. Yeah, it's called a mantle, <laughs> an all male panel. <laughs> a mantle. <laughs> There's an official term for it. It's also oh, very fun great. to follow Uh-oh. this on Twitter. Uh, people so have funny. a lot of fun with poking at this because, you know, I think a lot of people have woken up to the fact that, you know, when we look around and we just see all white male groups, you got to ask the question, like, is that really reflective of of who we are, of the industry? And it it probably isn't, even in the most white male dominated industries and construction, certainly one, I I started my career in construction. So I know that firsthand, but there's a lot more diversity even in those industries than we're giving credit for. And if we only have that myoptic representation, we're just not, we're not doing as good as we could. We're not getting the best ideas we probably could get. Uh, Studies show revenues are higher. Profitability is higher when you engage more than just the majority group in the conversation. So and the conversation's more interesting. I know I don't know oh, about yeah. you, but I learn more from people that are different than me than oh, people gosh, just yes. like me. Yeah, it, it, it's an it's an interesting way to also expand what we think we know because clearly we don't know everything. Wow, just just good stuff. Well, and another thing I want to add that came from the same conference, uh, there was a panel the next day, which was interesting. It was women in construction. So it was all women. That made sense. Male moderator? <laughs> I actually, I, I think the moderator was a woman also. Oh, okay. And they talked a lot about diversity inclusion and how do you create it and some really interesting conversation. And I was sitting there in the audience with this question. And I thought, how come they're not talking about this? And no one's asking this question. I said, okay, I guess I'll ask it. <laughs> So I, I took the microphone. I remember I remember because they threw the microphone around. It was like this big square that you could throw. <laughs> Never seen that before. And the question I asked was, I said, well, you've talked a lot about the challenges that women face and things that they need to do to empower themselves. But what's the role? What's my role in this? Mm-hmm. It seems to me that I have to have a role in it because I, I'm not here to rescue anyone. Right. But I have the voice right now. Mm-hmm. In our yeah. culture, I have some power because of my white maleness. And they, it was kind of funny because the whole panel started laughing. And they said, well, thanks for ans- asking the question because so few people actually ask the question. We need you to speak up. Mm-hmm. We need you to speak up and say, hey, there's something wrong about this. Because if we're the only ones ever speaking up as women, we're not going to be hurt. It's going to take a lot longer because it's too easy to dismiss us as, 
oh, well, you're being sensitive. But if, if men or others who are not like us can speak up, that helps us move forward more quickly. Yep. I said, no one wants to talk about it. I said, well, it's pretty clear. <laughs> Nobody brought it up. She said, well, Jeff, look around the room. Mm-hmm. Let's face it. This room is about 80, 75 to 80% white men. Mm-hmm. Why are they going to bring it up? So it's kind of funny. My question led to them taking a little swat at the room. Yeah, well, that's good. And and that that's exactly what allies can do, much like you said. If you recognize your power and your privilege in situations, and by default, people listen to male voices more. People listen to white voices more, especially in a subject around diversity, right? Because <laughs> what do you have to gain from it? It's like, whoa, he's asking a question that isn't self-serving. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we need our allies. Uh, one of my clients I've worked with over the years in the beer industry, another <laughs> famously white male in an industry, they said 50% of the population can only solve 50% of the problem. And that, that really resonated with me that how are we going to solve 100% of the problem? Why would you put the burden of solving the quote unquote women's issue squarely on women? It seems to me that's part of the problem is that we don't have access wow. to the same power, wealth, and structures that men do. And same with race. Uh, to yeah. put this the Black Lives Matter movement just on Black people's shoulders that are quite exhausted and fatigued from the events of this year, just not fair. And they're often not in the positions of power and privilege where they can influence real change. So we need all people talking about these issues and engaging so let me ask, because when I, I went to one of the Black Lives Matters marches, and one of the things that the organizers said was, we appreciate you allies, but you cannot lead. We need to lead this movement. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that's really, and this is where I think we need clarity, right, from what people want. So one of the one of the dangers of allyship is showing up, like Jeff said, with the rescue cape, like, I'm going to come in here and solve this problem. Right. And I think a lot of white people have mistakenly had that approach, like, oh, black people, this is what you need to do to, like, get your power back, right? And that's just <laughs> like, more like us. It's condescending. It's yes. not honoring their uniqueness. And it just, it's not a, a long-term strategy, a save-the-day strategy. So I'm guessing that organizers perhaps had a bad experience or two with white saviorism. (laughs) And I I think we have to honor where people are coming from. I often talk about meet people where they're at. And so in that moment, I would have been curious if it was a one-on-one dialogue, had the opportunity to say, I'm curious why you say that. Like, What role do you want white people to play? If if we want um, black leaders, and for a lot of reasons, that makes complete sense. You know, my community, it's all women of uh, black women that are leading the Black Lives Matter movement Mm -hmm. here locally. Um, and that's often the case. My, my concern with that, it, again, if if it's only people of color, if it's only women leading these initiatives, how do we scale it, right? How do we get the mass of allies involved? And maybe it's not front and center leadership role, but maybe it's a supportive role. Maybe it's a role of often what allies can do is amplify the voices yeah. of others. And that's one thing I struggled with when George Floyd um, was murdered. I didn't know what to say or do as a white person. I think a lot of white people were paralyzed with that. So kudos to you for showing up at a protest. That's certainly one thing you could do. Um, But the strategy I've chosen to really focus on long-term and throughout the year has been talking with uh, women of color because they do a lot of gender work, but making sure I'm getting the voices of women of color, asking them, being curious about their lived experiences that are very different than mine, just by nature of having different skin color. 
men amplifying their voices, um, showcasing their books on LinkedIn, interviewing them on my podcast, um, making sure that their voices are being heard and that I'm, I'm empathizing and trying to understand as best I can as an ally. Yeah. Yeah, I think well, that's one thing. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that's one thing that, that Jeff and I have been very intentional about is the mix of people that we have on this show. Uh, we, we track it. Yeah, so we're saying, okay, this is this is what our goal is. We're not quite there on certain factors, but you know, we've we've been very intentional about it. Yeah, and that's important. I, I talk about measuring. We measure what's important, right? And people tell me, oh, I can't measure something like. That. No, you just don't want to know what the results are. Usually, it's why you don't <laughs> measure it. So right. kudos to you for doing that. And you're not there yet. Guess what? Most people aren't there yet. It takes a while to broaden our networks. But what I have found. Uh, early on in my podcast, I would interview, yeah, it was a lot of white people, a lot of white women. And then as I kind of woke up to the fact that I needed to get better at this a few years ago, thankfully, I started talking more with people of color and and with other types of people and the LGBTQ plus community and those with disabilities. And it's like a springboard. You know, once you start talking to different people, different people start tuning in and wanting to talk to you. So it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem sometime and a bit of a dance. You know, we kind of have to move forward for other people to to see us and gravitate towards the message and see us as diverse and inclusive. Well, let's talk about that phrase. That is the phrase diversity and inclusion. Everybody's talking about it, especially in the corporate world. And I know there's a big issue here. I'm going to give you a little bit of how I see it, just to hear about it, and then just hear, get your perceptions on it. So you've got diversity inclusion initiatives, and so often I hear leaders saying, we're just hiring the best people. So as uh, long as we hire the best people, whoever shows up, we're doing the best we can. And the other piece, and, and carve it up however you want, the other piece I hear is, and I get this. They'll say, well, you know, diversity is more than just skin color and gender or sexual orientation, all those things. And it is. I get it. You know, it, there's diversity of thought, there, there's diversity of stories and backgrounds and all that. And I also feel like that can easily become an excuse to say, well, we've got a very diverse workforce, even though everybody looks the same and all that. But we're, I'm going I'm to latch on to the other diversity. So it's kind of like it's true, but it's not fully true. So yeah. sort of answer all that and then we'll be done. <laughs> yeah, like diver- all lives matter, right? Yeah. It's a little bit the same. Yeah. It's interesting. You hit my pet peeve. Uh, the first one, <laughs> the first one. Oh, I don't know how many leaders in corporate America I talk to that say, well, we really try to recruit diverse talent. They just don't apply or Oh, we've given people of color opportunities to be promoted, but they don't want to be promoted. Like who says that, right? Like who doesn't want to be promoted? Who does want to apply? Like that doesn't make any sense. Um, And so really challenging that. I'm a big fan of calling people into the conversation rather than calling them out. Shame (laughs) is not a productive social justice tool. It's only going to get people defensive. So instead of stinging them with a big ouch of no, you're wrong. It's like, well, help me understand what are you doing to diversify where you recruit your talent, right? So to go back to the same honeypot looking for different honey, you're not going to, no one goes fishing. I'm on Monster. Right. And and no one goes fishing and like blames the fish if you don't catch them. (laughs) You change your technique. (laughs) Same goes. They moved. Right. 
it's your responsibility. Switch it up. There's um, historically black colleges and universities, for example. Do you recruit there? Are you going beyond? Yeah. LinkedIn, indeed, places where a lot of white people are. I mean, it's just, it's kind of common sense, but it's also we're rooted in, you know, regular behavior. We don't like to change things and changing how we recruit and changing how we interview. There's a lot of interview bias. I mean, think about, don't you like people that went to your college or university? Right? I, I just hired somebody that's in my home. hire life. anybody from Duke, right? <laughs> we all do it. We like people like us. And guess what? Like, that's a problem. So yeah. you got to shake it up a little bit. I think corporate America is waking up to the fact that I might have to do some things differently if I want to get different types of talent. And I'm going to be better for it. And the second piece that you're striking in, broadening the definition of diversity and inclusion, I actually think this is good, mostly, but there is a, a tipping point where it can be unhelpful, like you said, Jeff. So it isn't just race and gender. I, I think when we myopically look at diversity and inclusion as things that we can visibly see, and those things you can't all, always visibly see, by the way, kind of guess, but you might not always be right about someone's gender identity or racial identity. We like things we think we can see that are concrete. So I do like broadening it. Um, Kind of the big five when I talk about diversity dimensions is um, being uh, cisgender, right? So the opposite of that would be transgender, somebody that's gender non-binary. So that's one area of gender identity being identifying as a female, right? Because we are in a male-dominated society and world. Uh, Identifying in the LGBTQ plus community, right? So lesbian, gay, bisexual, uh, or of a different race or ethnicity. So thinking about these as kind of dimensions rather than categories, rather than like boxes we check. Uh, and then you can you can broaden it. There's a cool exercise called a diversity wheel. And it has centered in the middle where the power and privilege usually lies. So white, able-bodied, you know, uh, higher economic, economic, socioeconomic status, uh, having a you know, fit body, all these different things. Uh, and then as you go out to the outer parts of the circle, there's other dimensions where you would likely have be marginalized or have less access to privilege based on the opposites of those. And I think in that exercise, people can usually identify one or two that I have that are privileges and maybe one or two that I don't have. And so especially for white men, bringing them into the conversation, I think is helpful to make it uh, broader than just race and gender as a holistic human experience. Uh, and if your listeners like that, the diversity wheel is easy to Google and look up. Another tool is a uh, privilege walk. And you can actually Google these questions and have rooms of people get, kind of say yes or no and take a tally. It is no surprise that white men, when we do this, when they candidly vulnerably share the results, they are close to 10 out of 10 on that scale. Yep. People of color and women are much more likely to be further down on that list. So Yes, yes and no on on uh, labeling diversity. I like keeping it broad, but we don't want to water it down. I have done that. I've done both of those, some version of both. I've done the walk a number of times. And typically, because of the nature of the groups that are not diverse, uh, typically when we've done them, because I've helped facilitate them, we have people play roles. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, you don't get the visualization. But we'll have to hand someone a card that says, this is what's true about you. And you're taking steps forward, you're taking them back, and you get back and you go, oh, wow. And, you know, for me, I know one of the challenges in this was a few number of years ago, but not that long ago, frankly. I can tell you, this was probably a four-year journey for me. Four years ago, I would say I was oblivious. But I went to a workshop, and I didn't have a good reaction to it. I mean, I, I was very open, but how I took that information, I felt very ashamed. Um, 
they did the, the wheel and it was 15 categories, mostly unearned privilege, but some earned. And I was, I was a, I was a two thirteen or a 13, two. I was in the privilege group, 13 out of the 15. And the only two where I'm, as I'm over 40, which I don't even consider an issue in my life. I don't feel like I experienced that. And number two is not fully abled because I have a hearing defect and needed a hearing aid. So I was like, I had to work to not be a shutout. And I felt bad about that. And because I felt bad, then I got angry and I went out and tried to change the world and it didn't work well. I mean, I just was beating everybody up because I was angry. So I was angry at everybody. And I said, okay, that's not working. And, and people you've just close. described the majority of corporate America leaders. Well, right. And, and thankfully I had friends who said, Jeff, that's not, you know, people who I wanted to be an ally for said, Jeff, that's not what I want. And that doesn't help. And by the way, it's actually kind of arrogant. You're angry. You're angry, Jeff, that I'm being marginalized as a woman. If anybody's going to be angry, let me be angry. Why the hell are you angry? Yeah. yeah. Support me. Don't be angry for me. I'm curious. Why were you angry? I was angry because it was really an outward expression of anger because I was angry at myself for not seeing it before. So my shame reaction was I wanted to beat myself up. And if I wasn't beating myself up, I'm going to beat up everybody else who's like me, who is oblivious or, you know, because I'm like all, and part of it was arrogance. Part of it was like, oh my God, I finally get this. Why don't, doesn't everybody see it? And then I just would just bull in a China shop. See that this isn't going to help. No, and it's not an, that's an all too common reaction with something like privilege. Uh, I have clients that'll say, hey, we want you to come in and do a privilege workshop with us. Like, "Mm, okay, what have we done already? (laughs) That is not step one. For exactly the reasons you just mentioned, it can actually cause a backlash effect if it's not approached correctly. And what I say is the P word, you know, kind of make make light of it a little bit because it is a jarring word and it creates defensiveness and shame. And you know, saying I have white privilege, it still doesn't feel good. I kind of get that like ugh, in my stomach saying it out loud even today. I've worked on this. But to, to really unpack that privilege is a chance to be an ally, to be supportive for somebody else. If you look at it through that lens of, wow, I have an advantage. Maybe I didn't earn it, right? But now I can help somebody else. And doesn't that feel good? I mean, one of the most human primal needs we have is to serve each other, to help each other. It feels very good to give to others. And that's because we're a social species. So it's actually, if, if you can just reframe it in your brain, that P word to a chance to help, <laughs> it feels a lot better. Wow. One of the things that's interesting, we had a guest, a friend of mine this summer uh, named Justin. I think I introduced you to Justin. I don't know if you've connected, Justin Jones-Fosu. Uh, I know Justin was cranking out his book edit. So he, I don't know if he got back to you yet, but Justin is, um, is a black man and does this kind of work. And he was saying that when he goes into companies and the leaders say, what do we need to do? The first question Justin asked them is how diverse is your life? Because if your life isn't diverse, it's not going to happen here because you're trying to do something that's counter to your life. So he really starts with what's going on in your life, which I really like. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah. Who do you eat dinner with? Who do you eat lunch with? Who are you hanging Mm -hmm. out at the game with? Yeah. And if you don't have diversity there, don't, don't start trying to force Mm -hmm. feed it into the company. 
Yeah, that's so good. And, and that was something I found in my research when I did uh, my book one on male allies. It starts at home. Allyship starts at home. So the things that you can't show up in the workplace being an ally if you're not practicing that at home. It's not like this on and off switch. Like I'm going to work, especially now. Gosh, we're so blended. <laughs> our whole lives are thrown together. There is no on and off switch. Like our, our personal has always been professional. There's always been a blend of these things. We're just now finally seeing it that way. So absolutely, the research bears this. Uh, there's a great book out there called The Good Guys um, that's written by two white men. And they found this exact same thing to be true, that if if people weren't being allies at home, being good guys at home for others that were different than them, it wasn't showing up in the workplace. It wasn't authentic. So that that really is step one. You know, for for wow. leaders in corporate America, take an inventory. Yeah, who do you spend time with? Who do you choose to spend time with? And I did this exercise Similar to you, Jeff, I've been on the journey for about five, six years since I started my business, obviously, um, practicing what I preach. And I thought, who do I choose to spend time with, right, outside of my immediate family and people I have to work with? And it was pretty white. It was pretty female. It was all business owners and mothers. And I was like, whoa, that looks a lot like me. Shame on me. I have to get better at this. And luckily, I had a woman of color friend at the time uh, that we were both authors and helped each other out. And I told her vulnerably, like, I'm embarrassed. Um, I need to get better. And she told me all sorts of ideas. I mean, it wasn't her responsibility to do that homework for me, but she cared about me enough that be supportive and help me. And now when I think about my network, you just look at your Christmas cards. We did that the other night. Like, oh, wow, there's only a couple. You know, I mean, it's still there's an opportunity because you know, who are you spending time with? Who do you have relationships with? And that your kids need to see that, right? Your kids pay attention to who do you invite into your home, who your friends are, and they're going to model that. So yeah. this this can become a perpetual issue if we don't address it. Yeah. I mean, we were very intentional about putting our children in schools that had a lot of diversity. And, you know, they they now have friends of all types. And so it's it's just good seeing that come out you know, the intentionality of the parent really, really can have an impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I struggle with this. We're in a very white dominated community and they actually just hired a diversity and inclusion coordinator for the school system. And so I am very intrigued. I was on the DNI council last year and of course everything's gotten blown to smoke this year, but we were starting to make some real headway and having conversations with parents about this. And if you're struggling with diversity in your community, you have to really look inward and be like, well, are we being inclusive? And I suspect in our community, we're finding out we're not. So what are we going to do? I think for white people, you know, 75% of white people live in white dominated communities still. So the segregation, it's, it may not be official, but it is obviously systemic and a real issue still today. So looking to your community, I've struggled with this as somebody that would like to live in a more diverse community and have my daughter in a more diverse school. Uh, and do I leave and do that, right? Do I, do I leave or do I stay and make change where change is needed the most? So just thinking about your life, I don't think there's a one size fits all approach to this, but it's, it's complicated. It's hard. And we're wrestling with centuries of inequality will not be solved overnight, unfortunately. But that means it's kind of fun. We, it's a, I, I tell people it's a journey, not a destination, Good news is always more to learn. Bad news is there's always more to learn. All right. So here's what somebody said to me recently in the last six months, and I've heard it more than once. They said, well, first of all, but as people, as human beings, our natural instinct is to be around people like us. 
And I said, you know what? I, I get that. So they were saying, what's really happening is we're just being around people like us. That's not non-inclusive. It's just human nature, and it's not unequal in any way. And I think there, I believe there's a trap in that because yes, there's that instinct, but how do you, how can you say it has nothing to do with difference? It has nothing to do with different power. It has nothing to do with systemic racism. If that's the topic, whatever the difference is, how can you say that? It's, it's, it's like people, I just feel like people are looking for an easy out that justifies staying asleep. There's my word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one wants to be called an ist of any sort, right? No one wants to think it's happening to me. Of course we don't. And so it's much easier to point the finger the other direction than to really look introspectively and think about how I can get better. Uh, I, I think when we think about we're all a part of these systems that keep certain people up and certain people down, it, it doesn't mean I'm a bad guy, right? It just means I'm playing a role in the system and I benefit from the system. Yeah. Right? I benefit from the systems that keep housing uh, segregated, for example. I, I benefit from the systems of uh, property taxes and, and how schools are funded, right? People that live in the inner city and in and, and less wealthy areas don't benefit from those systems. So it's, it, it's all, we're all playing a role <laughs> and it's recognizing we're playing a role and recognizing we have a voice. I think this is the big pinpoint. When people recognize a pain point, they instantly want to go into action mode. Right. And this is like the rescue cape and the unhelpful yeah, behavior. Right. Read a book, listen to a podcast, diversify who you spend time with in your life. That little microcosm of change, honestly, can spill over. You don't know the powerful impact you could be having on people local in your community. And we can make a bigger impact locally than we can sometimes when you look nationally. I think it's very confounding to think about how we can address these issues and unity is certainly lacking in our country right now. So think about what, what can I do locally? What can I do with my family? What can I learn about? What can I share with others in, in my network and those that I have influence over? Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. The Impact Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Cartavera. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, resources, events, and a community to help you grow. At Cartavera, we believe that you can't grow a business bigger than you, that your company is limited by your growth. We blend personal growth with leadership, team, and business growth to give you a single place to grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. You can find out more at cartavera.com. Welcome back. Well, the, the word that we've, you've mentioned a couple times, it keeps coming up for me in all of this work, Julie, is intentionality. Yes. I, mean, I know just as a couple examples within our business, when we put together a list of our potential podcast guests before we even started this, Craig and I just put, both put together a list and both of us, and I'll just talk about myself right now, I know lots of women. In fact, I probably have more women friends than men friends. The conversations are more interesting, frankly. <laughs> and we're not cutting that out. That's exactly, it's just true. Yeah. And, and they tend to be richer, frankly. But when we made our first list, it was a huge list. And then I said, we talked about having difference involved. And I went and looked at the list and it was like 75 or 80% men. Despite the fact that we both said we wanted to do different, and that was a moment of awareness to say, we have to be even more intentional yeah. because the system is stacked against us. 
because we're typically thinking about business owners. Typically, a lot higher percentage of business owners are men. So if we want to have more women, we've got to work harder at it. And I do the same thing, just like you said, about conversations. Who am I meeting with? Uh, I have very intentionally, and I've gotten over one part. There was a part of me, and when Justin was on, I talked to him about it. I actually felt bad being intentional. I felt that that was somehow wrong, like I'm interacting with you because you're different. And then I said, that is why I'm doing it, but I'm doing it because I want to learn and I want to grow and I want to have a richer life. And if I don't do it this way, it'll never happen because if I'm in default mode, it'll never happen. Yep. Well, two things you're striking at, affinity bias is what this is called. So kind of mini me complex. We like people like us. It's a human wiring uh, and uncon- form of unconscious bias that we all have because we're a tribal species where we used to have to size up who we could trust based on probably they look like us, they behave like us, right? They mirrored us. That's who we tend to trust. So you have to fight that bias. And, and that's why the word intentional is so important because you have to intentionally and consistently ask yourself and, and question yourself and intervene with that bias and slow it down because even when you're intentionally doing it with 75% people like you, I, I, I as well have felt like sometimes I will intentionally reach out to people of color, intentionally seek out guests, like you said, that are different um, for my podcast. And I wonder if that's fair, you know, to the majority group. And then I remind myself, there are so many barriers that these folks have faced that if I can do my part and uh, perhaps give uh, give special attention with with the intention of being curious and learning as a benefit, then that's okay. Uh, I had a conundrum uh, maybe a week or two ago. Uh, you know, people ask me, I'm a, a speaker for a living. So people will ask me though to do pro bono speaking, which is my favorite thing to answer yeah. those requests. We used Especially to this free. year. Yeah, we used to be free. Like I did enough sp- free speaking in the months of March and April for a lifetime. So I'm not doing a lot of that anymore. And I had a man of color ask me to come speak to his um, community group uh, for free. And I asked myself, if he was white, would I say yes? <laughs> and I actually quickly was like, nope. <laughs> but because he's a man of color and because he himself wrestles with having the conversation about diversity with his own community circle, I thought this is going to be a really great opportunity to help. And, and so I, I think you, you get into this situation. There's another dance we have to do. You know, people's minds go to affirmative action and reparations, and those are very jarring topics as well. But has the system been fair to everyone? You acknowledge, no, what can I do to perhaps give people that had a leg down, a leg up, right? And, and that's how I tend to look at it. And then I'm going to learn something and I'm going to grow and develop as a result of that. Wow. So Jeff, how about we give a uh, state of diversity report? <laughs> Here we are. Uh, what is it? The December 17th. And our targets are to be even on our men and women men and women we are at 57 percent male 43 percent female congratulations that's better than 75 percent well now we get into the race difference and so white 76 percent non-white 24 percent we got some work to do yep and i think most most podcasts are are that 80 percent white male hosts so you're not alone in that regard well, well, we don't count ourselves. Number, <laughs> but that number is, but our goal is not 50% on that. Yeah. The goal is not 50% on that one because that's not reflective. 
Yeah. Although we don't actually have a target set for that. We do have targets set for male, female. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd actually have to look. I'm going to guess it's probably 60-40. The population of the United States in general oh. is probably 60% white and 40% non-white. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's close to that. Yep. So, right. And, and we've this, got some work to do there. Well, this brings up another interesting point of view, though. Another question I get asked is, should I have diversity targets, right? Mm -hmm. I agree with measuring it. I think measuring it like y'all are doing brings to light, okay, we could get better at this. And maybe we want to measure against ourselves for a while just to make sure we're getting better. Setting goals can create a zero-sum game. Right. And in, in your you know, duo, maybe that's that's fair, not going to be a problem as much as it is in a corporate America organization where people are like, oh, see, she's only getting promoted because she's a woman. Oh, that's why that we hired that person of color. Right. So I, I think there is a dance here of we measure it. We want to get better at it. We have an idea of where what our goals could be someday and how we have that conversation is really important. And I'm glad y'all are holding yourselves accountable. And I think for us, I, I don't view them as quotas. I view them as intentions. Yeah. Right. So what it does is by, con and we have it in a little chart, it, by seeing it all the time, it reminds me if I'm interacting with someone, I'm thinking about that. Yep. And when I, and I'll be honest, when I meet someone who is different in whatever way, there is an intentional bias towards them to look for the opportunity to say, this is a good guest not because of their difference, but I'm looking harder for that. Or if I've got people reaching out to me, that is a factor. I want to look at their story, what's their topic. And if you're, if you're bringing a difference, I'm going to probably pay more attention to you in that moment than someone else. And, and to me, that's, I'm fine with that. I have no issue. And I would, and I would, you know, defend that to anybody if they wanted to challenge me. Well, that's yeah. just me as intentionality. So today I had a, a lunch club meeting and the the person I was talking with was a white male and he kept asking me about the podcast and I could tell, you know, maybe you wanted to be on the podcast, something like that. But I was intentional about not inviting him on the podcast because he was a white male. <laughs> <laughs> See, and then the backlash you'll hear is the, the white men are the ones suffering yeah. right now. And I always laugh like, come on. And that's where I would have said, I would have exactly. said the same thing two years ago. I would have said, come on, it's, it's against us. Right. And I wow, would say that now, if someone said that to me, I go, really? That those words just came out of your mouth. Yeah. You feel like you're being oppressed. Right. Like, like how look dare around. you? Look I mean, around. I, that's, well, where my anger, that's where my anger starts to come. Yeah, and sure. I think that intentionality keeps coming back to me. You know, Julie, you spoke about our communities. And that was a jarring awareness for me right before I moved to Florida, a couple, uh, not, not quite a year and a half ago. I had never thought about it, and I, someone brought it up, and I was researching the community I lived in in Ohio. It's a suburb of Cleveland. It is probably the whitest suburb in Cleveland. Its non-whites were less than 1%. Yeah. And I, and I went, but that's not who I am. But yet, that's how my life had unfolded. And I said, that's because I've just been following what I've been used to for the last 35 years. This is where I, this is where I always lived. Yep. And so I tend to just do what I've always done until I pull myself out of it. And moving to Tampa, when I moved here, I was really excited the first couple of weeks. I live in an apartment complex. And the first time I went to the pool, I loved it. There was like a dozen people there and every family was different. <laughs> uh, my, my girlfriend, her son and I were the only whites. 
there was Hispanic family, there was a black family, there was an Indian family. I said, oh my God, this is a cool thing. Mm. But then I found out that that's only true in this complex. Mm. And the neighborhood, the suburb, I guess you'd call it, I live in, is not that at all. Mm. And I found out that Tampa is like a lot of cities. This is not a knock on Tampa. Most cities mm -hmm. that you're not going to be around different people unless you're intentional about doing that. Because the only place, this is interesting, the only place I have found in Tampa where everybody is different without being intentional is the most prominent cigar shop here. <laughs> it's actually a very high-end cigar shop, which is interesting. But if you go into, it's called Davidoff. You go into Davidoff, the common theme of interest in cigars, and it's a cool place, whenever you go in there, you look around, it is incredibly diverse. Wow. But you're not going to find that in any other restaurants. You're, you're not going to find it. But for some reason, that common interest in cigars has people coming together, which is fascinating yeah. to me. That wow. is interesting. Yeah, you have to be intentional because our communities are designed to, to keep things separate, right? And if you don't, just like your upbringing, my upbringing, very similar, a suburb in Ohio, pretty white, uh, not, you know, we maybe had 15% kids of color in my high school. But still, I didn't get a lot of exposure to people that weren't different than me. So what did I carry forward in my corporate life and into my business until my wake up call five, six years ago was surround myself with people like me because that's the way I grew up. And I didn't know a lot of people of color. I didn't know a lot of people in the LGBTQ plus community, for example. And so you have to, the way that we have things designed, you almost think if we can't find diversity in natural places, why is that? Like, why is it that your apartment complex is so different than the other places? What's going on there? And really unpacking it. Because if you're not intentional about creating diverse experiences in diverse places, they won't happen spontaneously. They absolutely will not. So what about quotas? I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, what about quotas? You know, if we if we say we we are intentional about creating a diverse culture in our business, for example, and we want to have a representative mix of our clients, of you know the the surrounding community, whatever that is, how do we do that without how do we do that effectively? Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to start with where you're at, right? So measure where you're at today. And um, some of my clients will use benchmarks like industry data. If you have industry data, that's kind of a nice thing to do because everyone that's, likes a sounds dangerous. Because if you use it's, industry data, then you're just going on what a lot of other people have already done, which may not be very good. Yeah. You're not going to push the envelope by any means, but could, if you are, because people like to use that as an excuse, our industry is that way. So you're going to find right. out for, for real, if that's the case or not. And this could be a unique differentiator. Um, that's one. Um, setting goals is interesting. Uh, the NASDAQ recently uh, required that anyone listed um, on that their exchange has to have one person of color, one woman, which I was like, that's it? In their whole company? <laughs> yeah. The At the senior leadership team okay. level. What if okay. they're the same person? Right. Yeah, you got a twofer. Uh, unfortunately, that happens all too often, Greg. Yeah. Uh, but I thought, wow, we're still there. But if we don't set a target, some people will not move, right? And so I do think setting a target, setting a bogey, 
maybe setting it out long-term enough so it doesn't create the zero-sum game mentality for the short-term though. Uh, my my caution in just saying when I have clients say, we're going to hire this many people of color next year, like, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right way because how are they, are they going to stay? Are we doing the right things to make sure we're inclusive and they're not going to yeah. leave? Yeah. Um, if we're diversifying the candidate pool, I really like leading indicators like that. So diversifying our candidate pool, I just hired somebody and was practicing some of my, my best practices trying to and fighting my own affinity bias at the same time. We had a really diverse pool of 12 candidates that applied now and, and it stayed is stayed pretty diverse until the top three. Uh, the top one, though, is a white woman. And, and so I, I really wrestled with this as like, I need somebody that's diverse. But the skill set that she has is so good. And <laughs> I, I reconciled it with like, but I did keep the pool really diverse. So everyone had an equal chance. Right. But oftentimes the pool's not even diverse. So how are you ever going to get diverse talent? Yeah. And you're certainly, the more you go up in an organization, the the weaker it gets. So having targets, having long-term targets, measuring it, absolutely. Well, let me ask you a slightly different version of that. And, and where it's coming from is some experiences I've had outside the corporate world. I'm involved in an organization. It's a nonprofit called the Mankind Project. Uh, it's, a, it's designed to help men become better men in their life, basically. And I'm involved in leadership. It's a good organization. And we have a huge challenge because it's a dramatically white organization. And we keep saying we'd like to have more diversity. And we talk to the literally the handful of men who are men of color. And they're very honest. They said, look, I'm here because I believe in this work, but it's pretty hard for me to invite other people like me because I have to tell them you're going to show up and there's going to be 50 people here and you're going to be one of two that are black. Yeah, that's true. And in fact, and they're very honest with me. Like I've invited in, in the spirit of being intentional, I've invited uh, black men to come and lead weekends, lead a role. Mm-hmm. And they've said, I- I'm not going to come and be the only one. You got to tell, you got to guarantee me there'll be at least two other uh, men of color on this weekend. Yeah. And otherwise I won't come because I don't feel safe. And it's not that they feel like they're going to be attacked. It's if they're the early ones, they are. They can feel really alone. And the same thing in the corporate world can happen. Yep. If you're trying to start and change this, the people you bring in, they're stepping into a very potentially isolating role. Yeah. Isolated role. You're you're talking about the tax of being the only, um, being the only or the only one or two, right? Yeah. And so a lot of times senior leadership teams will say, well, we have a woman or we have two women or we have two people of color. What the research shows is that what you really want to strive for is critical mass and critical mass is 30% of a given group. Then people start feeling like they're not the only one, that there's not just one other person like them, that there's more, even though we're not at 50-50, there's more of us uh, than just a a few. So I'm not going to feel like the only, the woman that has to represent all women in this conversation, the person of color that has to speak up for all people of color, or that people are going to single me out as that only person. And you're right, it's not physical safety usually that people feel a lack of, it's psychological safety. And that again, that goes back to like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We need to feel psychologically safe in our workplaces. This is not a nice to have. People don't stay places they don't feel like they belong. And, and skin color, gender identity, there are certainly things that we have our radar up to pick up on. Our people like me here, ooh, not, I might not be safe, right? Mm. We, we've talked a lot. I mean, we've talked about a wide range of diversity and what it means. 
but I, it feels like our conversation has been pretty heavily weighted towards color. I feel like for myself, uh, I, I want to talk a little more about gender and some of the unconscious biases in gender. In particular, this actually came up in a social media post in the last 36 hours. I don't know if any of you see these, but on LinkedIn, people can post that they're looking for a coach. And I read this list, and this woman listed she wanted a coach, and she said she wanted a coach because she wanted to learn how to be more aggressive in the workplace. Mm. And my initial response was, wow, why does someone want to be more aggressive? And it's <laughs> right. led to a really interesting conversation. Some people, were, and I haven't had a chance to talk to her. I don't know her. This is just the word. That's the only thing she listed was to be more aggressive. And a lot of great feedback. People saying, well, maybe she meant assertive. And, you know, then they're also talking about, you know, mm -hmm. women in the workplace who are considered aggressive. That's not a compliment, generally. But if men, it is a compliment. It's actually, yeah. that's considered a compliment. Well, we associate it with confidence, with male Right, exactly. So can you talk a little bit about what's going on today in, in the business world around gender issues? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, there's a gender bias towards women. Women are much more likely when you look at performance reviews to get coached on you're being too aggressive or you're not being too aggressive or aggressive enough. It's called uh, the gender tightrope is a form of gender bias. So I can't be too masculine because, yeah, I'm the B word and I can't be too feminine because then I'm passive and I'm a pushover. So I got to be just right. So men, women in a male world are constantly doing this mental Olympics of like, can I be this version of me or do I be this version of me? And I don't know how many times I, I felt this. I didn't know I had the words to articulate it in my own corporate career, but I had a boss tell me one time I was too pleasing. And I was like, well, what do I do with that? You know, and then, and then in an interview process, I was told I was too confident. And I was like, well, that's not a, shouldn't be a problem. You know, but if I was a man, one of the, one of the tools I love uh, to use myself and I share with leaders is called the flip it to test it by Kristen Pressner. She has a Ted talk on this. So flip it to test it. If I were a man, would you give me that same feedback? Right. Would you say this if I were a woman versus a man? And if, if it's not true, when you flip the gender, then it, there's probably some bias going on there. And this is where we, we have to make sure our behavior isn't consistent with that bias. Mm. Uh, we're much more likely to see men as uh, providers and women as caregivers. And this leads to a whole host of challenges in the workplace where women aren't taken as seriously, where women can't have as firm of a tone, uh, where men are more likely to get promoted, uh, especially in the childbearing years. So these are all issues that show up in the workplace. Uh, the, the key is, is again, keeping that radar up, right? That, that intentionality factor, be looking for these things when they happen and call people in when, when they do, I, you could just say, well, when you said that, when you said too aggressive, like, what do you mean by that? Right. It, it doesn't have to be this like horrible, like conversation that escalates and we're no longer you know able to speak to each other. I think that's where people go <laughs> in their minds, <laughs> this right. scary place. I'm, they're going to think I called him a sexist. No, like, just clarify. And a lot of times what people do when you call something out like that, they'll go, oh, well, I didn't mean it like that. I actually meant this. Like, oh, okay, cool. I thought you meant it that way. Thanks for clarifying, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Assume, yes, benefit of the doubt. Assume people have positive intention. Yes. Assume they're unaware of their behavior. Oh my gosh. And yes. just clarify. And once people slow down and they think about what they said, they almost always catch themselves. Now, if they don't have self-awareness, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> they might need some feedback, yeah. but most people can figure it out. Wow. I love the flip. I, I mean, that's something I use a lot, starting with myself. 
And I offered a lot of my friends and clients to just flip it. And if your reaction would be different, no matter what the issue is, there's something off. Because if you have a certain belief, it should be the same no matter what, whether it's a diversity issue, all sorts of things. And you know, one of the things I believe I believe in the power of words. And I think some people can say, well, words don't matter. But I think there's so much in the words. And an example I just heard in the last few days, uh, someone I was talking to on a call, uh, just a Zoom call, was saying that her husband was commenting that at work, one of his team members who was a woman had given him a really nice compliment at work, gave him a really nice compliment. And his response to her was, thank you, that was really sweet. And he told the story at his home, at home, and his wife said, I'm curious, if a man <laughs> had given you the same compliment, would you have said it was sweet? Jeff, that's sweet. Now, he said he would. Okay. And so she said, okay. But she also added, be aware, people heard that. They may interpret that you are in, you know, that word is a word we tend to use with women. Yeah. Um, Yep. And how does that maybe children. disempower her, right? Yeah. And it's just a word, but if you're not aware, and it, so to me, if I'm not, I'm not aware until I'm aware, and then the question is, what do I do with the awareness? Because being aware is not enough for me. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean I have to be perfect. I will still make mistakes. But if I hear and go, oh, that's a good point, but I continue to do the behavior, then I'm not really committed to changing the yeah. dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gendered language is everywhere and words do matter. I tell people Mm -hmm. uh, one of the biggest things you can do to show that you're inclusive is get comfortable with what I call the diversity dictionary (laughs) and just using, using words. Like we were talking about pronouns before we got started, just sharing your pronouns on your LinkedIn and your email signature. I I thought that was silly. I was like, well, everyone knows I'm a woman. Why do I need to do that? (laughs) This is a few years ago. I've, I've been woke since, but I, I most recently had a friend of my daughter's her mother reached out to me and said, Hey, I saw your email signature and I wanted you to know that um, one of my sons is gay and I know you're a safe place that I can talk about that with you. Like all these little signals that we send all the time with the words we use, the pronouns, you know, what we choose to talk about signals to other people. Are you on my side or not? Right. Will you hear me or not? Will you include me or not? And, you know, to your point about bringing people, you know, wanting to diversify who we spend time with and them not feeling safe doing so, we, we need to use really, be really mindful of the inclusive language that we're using. Um, it doesn't happen spontaneously like we've been discussing. It has to happen through intention. And just talking about things like cisgender, talking about things like people of color is a great term to get comfortable using. You've used that term, Jeff. It signals to people like, oh, they get it, right? Oh, I could probably talk to him about something about anti-racism, right? He'd probably be okay with that. If I show my pronouns, you're probably okay about talking about LGBTQ stuff. Yep, absolutely. So anything you can do to signal to people that I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm here, I'm, I'm going to show up and I'm going to listen and I, I want to know more and I want to be inclusive. Well, one thing I've done very intentionally with that is typically that is a phrase I will use in general, person of color. Mm-hmm. But when I have relation, once I'm in relationship with someone, I just ask them. Yeah. I'll say, look. When I'm in conversation, I tend to use the word person of color. What do you prefer? Mm-hmm. Whether I'm referring to you in context or not. Because some say I actually prefer black. I go, cool, but I'm doing that in the interpersonal conversation, but I'm still going to use that word in the collective. Yeah. Because I think it is more inclusive. Feels like it's inclusive. 
And I if agree. someone says, I, I don't like that, I said, well, thank you for that. Um, as best I can remember, I'll do that with you then. Yeah, exactly. And the key thing you use there, Jeff, is you got to know them first. So yes. where people make a mistake, it's like right out of the get-go, I just met you. Hey, do you like to be called Black or African-American? <laughs> like, that is just so, like what you've done in that situation is you've just put that identifier right on them and made them feel like the outcast, made them feel like that's the only thing you see is my racial identity. I'm so much more of a person than just that. So get to know the person first. You can use, you know, kind of person of color uh, and other, you know, terms first, and then ask them once you have an established relationship. I can ask all sorts of silly questions now of my friends that are of color because I've shown up for several years and they know doing it good intention, but I could not have asked those questions early on. It would have been quite rude. <laughs> so Julie, uh, one question we usually ask near the end, and I'm going to ask it now is we've talked for a while about diversity, inclusion, difference, uh, how we talk, words, flips, really great stuff. Sometimes there's, there's probably usually something we haven't asked you. What's the question we haven't asked you that you need to answer to close this off? Mm, oh, that's good. I, I think a lot of times people ask, like, what's next in this conversation? And I don't think anybody knew 2020 is going to hand us so many curveballs. So I don't have a magic wand or ball. I can't forecast the future. But I, I do think when you think about diversity and inclusion going into 2021 and, you know, for leaders listening to this and wanting to be involved and not be left out and not be surprised again, you know, these things, these world events, these things are going to happen again. Um, I would really, really think long and hard about how I want to show up next year. You know, how do I want to be, as I would call an ally, you can call yourself whatever, you know, form of uh, ally or brand you want to call yourself. But how do I want to be inclusive? How do I want to be seen? You know, how do I make other people feel when they're around me? Because we remember that. It's, yes. it's a lasting, lasting feeling. Uh, and this inclusion factor, seeing people for who they are and really hearing them and, and not having all the answers and, and learning and being open to curiosity is it really helps you just be a better human. So I would just say, you know, as you think about 2021, Whatever your organization looks like, whatever your network looks like, think about where you can lead from where you're at. Uh, we all have influence regardless of you know, title, position, wealth. What can you do um, to be inclusive? Because I think, I think the world, we all want it to be a better place and it's, we're a ways away from that. But it does start with our own, not to be hokey, but it starts with your own behaviors and your own sphere of influence. So I'd, I'd encourage leaders to kind of set some intention for, for uh, 2021. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that, Julie. We always want to ask our guests, is there anything in particular you want to promote or make our listeners aware of? Yeah, well, I've got my own podcast, uh, the Next Pivot Point podcast. So I interview diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders all over the world, actually. Hmm. Uh, so I've got over 100 episodes there. And so if you oh, like cool. the subject, we do a lot more conversation and, and very cool conversations I get to have with people that are just remarkable human beings, very fascinating. Hmm. Um, and then I do diversity training. So if your organization's struggling and not where you want to be on diversity, I have a very actionable, intentional, um, kind approach to it. It is very much meet people where they're at. And I call it lead like an ally. Uh, so if you're curious about that, check out nextpivotpoint.com. Find the podcast there and the lead like an ally program there. Well, we will put all of that in the show notes. Uh, is your website, obviously they can track you down. What's the best way for them to connect to you? Is it email? Is it LinkedIn? What's the most, yeah. makes the most sense? 
Yeah, I appreciate that. LinkedIn, I'm on there every day. I post every day. Um, Julie Kratz, K-R-A-T-Z. And then if you are a Twitter person, an Instagram person, I also post regularly there. Uh, Next Pivot Point is the handle. Fantastic. We always close off with a couple of signature questions. And since you didn't choose, I get to choose. And uh, Uh I'm going to pick two of my favorites. One is, I'm a movie guy. Craig and I are both movie and television folks. What's a movie or a scene or a character that speaks to you about leadership, particularly on this topic of diversity and inclusion? Oh, it's so funny you asked that. I just binged watched the series. So I guess it's not a movie, but it's a series, uh, Ted Lasso. Have y'all seen this? Oh. oh, it's so good. It's on Apple TV. So if you don't have yeah. it, um, it's worth checking out. It's worth getting the trial just to watch this show. And there's 10 episodes or like a half an hour each, but I just binged it over last weekend. And it's about an American uh, football coach that goes over to uh, England to coach a Premier League soccer team. <laughs> He's like a fish out of water. And it's, it's um, really well acted and just, it, there's a diverse of obviously cultural experiences. Uh, the team's very diverse too. And he, as a coach, uh, the Coach Lasso character, really is vulnerable, uh, very, has these like motivational talks that are just so bizarre and weird and funny. Oh, I uh, <laughs> and he's a white guy, right? Talking about this stuff and and putting himself out there and I think leading in a way that some might label as soft, right? And some of the players call him out for that. You're not a real leader. And then you realize how that works, right? How that 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 short, that long-term strategy takes some time to pay off, but it starts to work and it starts to motivate people and people start to change as a result of it. So uh, he has one quote in it. I'll, I'll stop after this, but there's a Walt Whitman quote he talks about when he, the people have always underestimated me and I used to be really hurt by that. And I read this Walt Whitman quote in my kid's classroom, be curious, not judgmental. And he thought that's what they were doing. They were judging me. They weren't curious. They stopped being curious about me. Well, I'm going to show them, right? And it was just a really fun way to think about it. I think sometimes when you think we're being kind, uh, we're listening, we're being supportive, that that's weak. And it's not. It's, it's really a powerful tool if we continue to show up that way. But it's hard and it's vulnerable and got to tap into our authenticity and really know ourselves. But that, that's my favorite one right now. Oh, I love that one. Uh, and I'm going to ask you the second question. The second question is, imagine you have the opportunity to have dinner with anybody that's alive today, anyone in the world. Who do you want to have dinner with? And what's the one question you're going to ask? Them? Mm, uh, Brene Brown, super easy. <laughs> I've been listening. That's another binge. So I'm listening to her podcast. <laughs> Oprah walks every day, even in the winter. And I listen to her in my earbuds on her podcast. And uh, right now she's interviewing Barack Obama. And I was actually thinking about this yesterday, uh, going for my walk. Like, if I could sit down with her, would I even know what to say? Would I even, I would be so starstruck. I wouldn't want to talk about myself at all. I'd want to like ask her all these questions, but I was actually thinking about the scenario coming true. So maybe someday, but there's so many elements of her message around empathy and vulnerability and she's a shame researcher. So it's just, it's so, um, what was really cool about her too and her podcast she launched this summer, little did she know Black Lives Matter and everything that's going to happen, but her lineup of guests was already very diverse, right? So she had already done that. She'd already had the interview about anti-racism before Black Lives Matter, before George Floyd. So that just really was like, wow, she is so authentic, right? She is so real and I connect with her in so many ways. So 
that's that's who I'd want to talk to. But I would probably be so nervous and sweaty that I wouldn't know what to say. <laughs> that's okay. awesome. We did a TED Talk Tuesday last week and Brene was the one that we did, the one on vulnerability. Mm, so, it's one good. of the top 10 of like all time. All time. Yeah. Yeah, both, she's, both of hers are in the top 10. Yes. Yep. And her Netflix special is super good too. If it's still on Netflix, that one's awesome. Just so easy. I to not seen to it much, much like you, Julie. Oh, thank yeah. you. I, I like to say I like someday I could be her someday. <laughs> well, I will tell you this, Julie, since you just said that, and I told, I said this on our mastermind Monday about a week ago, a few years ago, when I first started hearing about Brene Brown, I wrote her a letter, not an email. I wrote her a letter. I never heard back, which is fine, but I wrote the letter. And when I reread it, I chose to take out a sentence because in the first draft, there was a sentence that said, I so admire your work. I want to be the male version of you. <laughs> and when I read the sentence the second time, I said, why do I want to be the version of somebody else? Why don't I just be me? And mm -hmm. I took the sentence out. So I learned a lot about myself just from writing a letter. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I just said that too. Because I'm like, right. I want to be me, but yeah. I want to be like her. Right. <laughs> I want to emulate her. <laughs> so thank that's you good. so much for being with us, Julie. Yes. Thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is fun. If you like this podcast, you'll love the Cartevera Tribe. The Cartevera Tribe is a community of growth-committed leaders who want to connect, engage, and grow themselves, their people, and their businesses. Cartevera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, assessments, and events to challenge you and help you grow. And the Cartevera Tribe is a membership like none other. You'll get live access to Craig and Jeff where you can ask questions, as well as masterminds where you can get answers from other leaders who've already solved your greatest challenges. You'll have access to additional interviews and a variety of courses, tools, and resources to help you achieve your biggest goals. We have monthly game days where we have challenges and competitive games to help you grow your leadership capabilities. And you'll get a personal growth Sherpa who will guide you to help you reach your growth goals. To find out more, go to cartavera.com. That's C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. See you on the inside. Hi. My name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.